a mini-series on the implications of the Great Tribulation. And you might say I've gotten stuck on the problem of evil because the Great Tribulation obviously is really the culmination of uh, the whole issue of the problem of evil in history. Um, and so this has led us uh, to ask questions like this, and these are in your notes. If God is good and all-powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? Does God have the capacity to choose evil? And was it God's will for humanity to fall into sin? These are really key questions that we've been working on. And, and uh, they led us to a really troubling question. Here's your first blanks tonight. You, got, you can see you got a lot of them tonight because we're unpacking a, a really fascinating issue. Uh, if, here's your blanks. If God is totally sovereign and has absolute control, is God the cause of evil? If God is totally sovereign and has absolute control, is God the cause of evil? That's one that we really unpacked in detail before, but you'll see the, uh, what we didn't cover uh, that time that we will tonight. So as we dealt with this question, some of us were stunned to find the answer. Within the Christian traditions, uh, and these are the, the, the traditions with high views of Scripture, there are two schools of thought. When asked whether God is the cause of evil, some Christians say no, and others say yes. And here's what these traditions believe. Here are the theological traditions that say that God is the cause of evil. They believe this. Here's your blanks. God willed and caused sin and evil. We'll see some numerous quotes in just a minute on this. Uh, and the theological traditions that say that God is not the cause of evil believe this about God's sovereignty. Here's your blanks. God allowed for the possibility of evil by granting humans the power to make genuine moral choices. Notice God allowed the for the possibility of evil by granting humans the power to make genuine moral choices and giving them the ability to rebel against his will. So we spent two weeks unpacking these two theological traditions and what they teach about whether humans have the freedom to obey God's will or to oppose it. If you haven't seen those yet, those are Thursology 64 and 65. Go back and, and see where we unpack this in detail. And this led us to one of the most fundamental differences between Reformed theology, which you can use interchangeably uh, with Calvinism, uh, the di fundamental differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. And uh, the theology of understanding God's sovereignty are, are these two major Protestant uh, uh, traditions. Here you go from Reformed theology. God's sovereignty allows for no human freedom or choice. That's really important. God's sovereignty allows for no human freedom or choice because every detail of every thought and every action is predetermined and controlled by God. And from Arminian theology, here's what they believe. In God's absolute sovereignty, so it's it's a straw man for the, for the Reformed theologian to say that the Arminians don't believe in God's absolute sovereignty. That's not true. This is their interpretation of God's absolute sovereignty. In his absolute sovereignty is chosen to be interactive with humans as he allows meaningful choices. So notice that again. Let me say that. In God's absolute sovereignty, he has chosen to be interactive with humans as he allows meaningful choices while never surrendering the clear biblical doctrine that his purposes will be established. So in both cases, God's absolute sovereignty is affirmed, but in the Arminian view, his sovereignty is expressed by his purposes being established even when people choose 
to reject his will. And with this view, the review, we're now ready to look at tonight's topic. And here it is. Uh, it flows really right out of here and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, just jump right in. Look at this. Uh, here's your blank. A mystifying implication of Calvinism's understanding of God's sovereignty. God holds people responsible for doing the very thing that he causes them to do. Let me say that again. God holds people responsible for doing the very thing that he causes them to do. This teaching flows directly from the Reformed view that God is the cause of every human action, including sin, evil, and rebellion. Let's review some of what the Reformed theologians teach. And again, full disclosure, I uh, come from the Arminian understanding and tradition uh, of, of Scripture. Um, so this is not my view. So that's why you can see I, I don't have a bunch of Arminian quotes in here. I have a bunch of Calvinist theologians quotes in here so that I'm not speaking for them. Notice from Edwin Palmer, he says, all things are ordained by God, including sin and unbelief. And from R.C. Sproul, probably one of the most well-known uh, current, um, uh, maybe along with John Piper, uh, five-point Calvinist, notice God wills all things that come to pass. God desired for man to fall into sin. Ready? God created sin. And from Arthur Pink, in his omniscience and foreknowledge, not only did God see Adam eating of the forbidden fruit, he decreed beforehand that he would do so. So it was by God's decree, will, mandate that Adam ate from the forbidden fruit. And then back uh, from Edwin Palmer again, God decides and causes all things to happen that do happen. And look how much detail he goes into. He has foreordained everything from the counsel of, after the counsel of his will, the moving of a finger, the beating of a heart, the laughter of a girl, the mistake of a typist, even every sin. Now to the average person, these declarations lead immediately to an obvious question. Here it is, here's your blanks, write it in. If God causes sin, how can humans be responsible for that sin. This concept creates a situation where God condemns humans for doing what he caused them to do. In fact, that's exactly what they teach. Look from Edwin Palmer again. This is so astonishing. I want you to write it in. Here's a quote directly from Palmer. Look at this. Here's your blank. God ordained sin and man is to blame. Let me say that again. They say this with a straight face. God ordained sin and Man is to blame. But here's the problem with this. Simple logic, just the simplest of logic and any reasonable definition of being responsible for an action means that humans can't be responsible for carrying out evil actions that were imposed on them by divine decree. How can God condemn the very action that he has irreversibly forced someone to do? And then, how can it be called rebellion against his will when it's exactly what his decree demands? How can God object? <laughs> really a, an obvious additional question, all these parallel questions, right? How can God object when humans do what he predestined them to do when they cannot do otherwise? And this leads us to a series of concepts that flow from these reformed beliefs. You ready? Concept number one, we're going to unpack these Concepts, ready? Here's your blank. 
humans aren't rebels, we're puppets. And this concept gives us Reformed theology's strange perspective on human disobedience. You ready? Strange, I mean that in the logical sense. I don't mean that in any pejorative sense. I mean this in <clears throat> just from the basic concept of reason. Ready? What is called rebellion is in fact merely acting out what God has predetermined they will and must do. Ready? Theology's, Reformed theology's strange perspective on human disobedience, what is called rebellion, is in fact merely acting out what God has predetermined they will and must do. But this creates an immediate set of logical and theological problems. The fundamental conundrum that's set up by this belief system is stated brilliantly by theologian Frederick Farrar. Uh, this is really good, so, so write it in. Here it is. What God commands must be within the power of the will to obey. Think about that. What God commands must be within the power of the will to obey, since ability is the measurement of obligation. Now that you've written that in, look at it. What God commands must be within the power of the will to obey, since ability is the measurement of obligation. And this sets up a series of problems for the Reformed theological concept of rebellion. And, and I'll write them in with you tonight, because these are really what we will deal with for a good portion of this, of this session. Problems from the Calvinist concept of rebellion, or sin, if you will, or, or unbelief. Ready? Problem number one, no one is obligated... to do what is impossible. For them to do. No one is obligated to do what is impossible for them to do. And problem number two, in the absence of the ability to make a true moral choice, the concept of blame has no meaning. Look what you just wrote in. In the absence of the ability to make a true moral choice, the concept of blame has no meaning. And then finally, here's the great complication of Calvinism's perspective on sin. Ready? It demands the absence, it demands by its very nature, the absence of moral freedom, they would all say that if they're true Reformed uh, believers, uh, demand the absence of moral freedom, it removes any possibility of the choice to obey, and thus removes any responsibility. for disobedience. Look at that one again with me. The great complication of Reformed theology's perspective on sin is it demands the absence of moral freedom. It removes any possibility of choice to obey, or disobey for that matter, and thus removes any responsibility for disobedience. But compare that to the universal theme one of the great themes of Scripture. The fact that God 
isn't the cause of human rebellion is stated so many times in the Bible that there's almost no need to recite any of the passages. But let me give you just a few. Look at this from Isaiah and all of these passages for efficiency. These will all be in your text there. And so you can go back and study them again. Look from Isaiah, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. And notice, look at this. They have abandoned the Lord. Notice the action. Notice who's making the choice here. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Not they have obeyed God's decree to turn away. They have abandoned. They have turned, not turned away. So notice, not, uh, have turned away. And from Luke 7, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. And notice God's role in this, stated from Romans 10, here it is. But as for Israel, he says, Paul writing, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Look at that, trying, stretching out his hand, trying to get them to come back all day long. I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Let's look at one more passage where this is explicit from Jeremiah chapter 44. Look at it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you yourselves have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. Why? Because of their wickedness, which they committed, so as to provoke me to anger by continuing to burn sacrifices and serve other gods. Yet, look at his wooing. I sent you all my servants, the prophets, again and again, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing, which I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ears to turn from their wickedness. Now then, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, why are you doing great harm to yourselves? Look at this. Listen to God's direct question and write it in. Why are you doing great harm to yourselves? This is not God's rebellion order to rebel. This is why are you rebelling? So scripture couldn't possibly be any clearer about who was causing the evil and who was responsible for their evil choices. God wasn't, they were. Concept number two, here's your blanks. God forbids sin, then causes humans to sin, then punishes them eternally for carrying out the sin which he decreed they would do. It boggles the mind from the Arminian perspective. Let me read it now and look at it. God forbids sin, then causes humans to sin, then punishes them for carrying out the sin which he decreed that they would do. This concept really is difficult to understand because how can humans be justly punished for doing what they have no capacity not to do? And this leads us to the fundamental basis for just punishment. Here, this is just punishment. Ready? Write it in. Here's your blank. Justice in punishment assumes that the offender could have avoided the offense for which they are punished. Uh, I realize it can get misused a lot, but even in American law, based originally on the scripture, notice that a person can truly be not guilty because they are 
so out of touch with reality that they had no capacity. They're, they're actually, in fact, insane and have no capacity to have avoided what they did. It's actually a defense. That comes directly from scriptural underpinning. So to punish someone for doing something that they couldn't possibly avoid is patently unjust. But in the Reformed view, God causes humans to sin, and yet they're accountable for the sin that God causes them to do. Listen to Edwin Palmer again on this. You had written it in. You can look up back up there if you want to. God ordains sin, and man is to blame. And look at the insightful response that author Dave Hunt gives to this. I've written it in your, your notes there. Look at this. Very insightful. And it is as, God, as if God has thrown billions of people into the ocean whom he has created in such a way that they cannot swim, swim a single stroke. Then he, notice in quotes, then he mercifully rescues some of them and leaves the rest to drown. And then, to make things worse, God says to those whom he created to drown, it's your own fault. It is outrageous to suggest that those whom God foreordained to eternal doom are to blame for the very fate that he created them for. Some simple questions. Can a paraplegic be faulted for failing to become a world-class sprinter? Can someone command a man to have a baby and then punish him for not doing so? This simply isn't not just unjust, it's actually irrational. And here's where the Reformed theology of human responsibility breaks down. Write it in. Here's your blanks. No one can justly be held accountable. Think about this. No one can justly be held accountable for failing to do that which is impossible for them to do. Here's another way of saying this. God's sovereignty originates a person's evil, then declares them guilty for carrying out his unchangeable decree, and then holds them accountable for doing the only thing that they possibly could have done. This is the very height of injustice. And notice, here's the height of injustice. Here's your blanks. God incites humans. He decrees it. He forces it. It will happen by his decree in the Reformed concept. God incites humans to carry out the very sin that he forbids. Look at that sentence. God incites humans to carry out the very sin that he forbids. We uh, already have seen how this is irrational and unjust, but it goes far beyond that. This actually brings into question the very character of God. It's completely out of step with a host of passages that describe God's integrity, his perfect justice, his flawless character. Let's look at just two of these. It's in your notes. Look from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear you, earth, the words of my mouth. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. Ready? He is a rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. And now look at the beginning of 1 John that declares a very specific attribute of the incredible nature of this wonderful God. Look at from 1 John, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, 
and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This, of course, is capitalized in the good translations. This mean, meaning Jesus, the word of life. Ready? This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What an amazing God. You can always count on him. In fact, that's the one great difference between the God of the Bible and the, or one of the great differences uh, between the God of the Bible and the other gods of the world. Think about the gods of the world. They're capricious. They change their minds all the time and make arbitrary de declarations. They flip-flop on important issues. This, of course, through their, their priests who claim that they're real gods and speak for them. After all, think about it. If you can't be capricious, what good is it being a god? If you have to play by the rules, don't you lose the main upside of being divine? Right? But why be constrained by all these rules? After all, you're, you're a god. Um, wouldn't you like to, to just do whatever you feel like, no matter what the consequences and no matter who it hurts? You're a god, so you call the shots and no one can question you or what you do. And who are all those pathetic little humans to question you anyway? Because remember, you're a god. And now enter into history the God of the Bible. He's what's so amazing. Here's what's so amazing about him. He's always true. He's always loving. He's always just and always faithful. Listen to the text from 1 John again. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And God will remain true to this even when it costs him dearly. In fact, as we all know, on the cross, remaining faithful and true cost God everything. And now stop and think for a moment about how the perspective of Reformed theologians makes huge portions of Scripture basically incomprehensible in any typical or normal sense. Here's just one snapshot. Look with me at the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Pretty famous passage. Look at this. Now the Lord said to Moses, it's in your notes, come up with me to the mountain and remain here and I will give you the stone of tablets and the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of God rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered into the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So God has now given the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law to God's people. And let's get this straight. Remember, from a Reformed perspective, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and God goes through this spectacular masquerade of giving Moses the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone, knowing full well that he is already predestined that almost all of the Israelites will disobey the commands. How can it, this possibly be a God of light, a God of truth? a God of justice, a God in whom there is no darkness at all. This is simply incongruous 
with God's very nature. He's giving the tablets when he's already made it so that the people will disobey by his own sovereignty. You may be aware that huge portions of the Old Testament are stories of God pleading with the Israelites to obey his way, his word, and his law, and warning them that they'll have huge consequences if they fail to respond. And yet, we're supposed to believe that their disobedience and rebellion and unbelief all fall perfectly into God's predestined plan for each and every one of them. How can any of the hearers of the commandments be responsible for failing to obey when it's impossible for them to do so since God has already decreed that they will disobey? And once again, we're left with an obvious and simple way to resolve this massive contradiction. Here it is. God loves every human and he, does want, he doesn't want any to perish and he's provided the opportunity for full pardon and redemption to all. But he's given humans the power of choice so they can either love him or reject him. And because of this, the responsibility for sin, sorrow, eternal judgment, death, and suffering are on humanity's shoulders because they reject God's ways and his offer of salvation. And now we're ready to move on to our application. Application. Here it is. Here's your blanks. Blaming our sin on someone else. Blaming our sin on someone else has catastrophic consequences. There's ever the tendency for humans to blame others for our faults, our poor decisions, and our sin. And unfortunately, we live in the age where this is exactly what our culture believes that we, uh, that we believes about us, right? Blaming others for our bad choices is completely compatible with the modern thought. And here's one of the most fundamental beliefs of sociological and psychological theory. Ready? Here's your blank. Humans are not responsible for their actions. We mistreat others because we were ill-treated as a child. We have an anger issue because we've been treated so unfairly. We steal because big business and the rich have ripped us off. We look at pornography because our wife doesn't fulfill our needs. We cheat on our taxes because the government is irresponsible and we disagree with them. And this is why modern psychology has such favor today. It allows people to think that something or someone else is responsible for their bad behavior. And this gives us a key concept. Here's your blank. Write it in. Modern secular thought allows people to be sick rather than being sinful. Got that? Modern secular thought allows people to be sick rather than sinful. And this frees them from responsibility because sickness isn't their fault. Sickness is something outside of a person's control and thus they're not responsible for what they do. Someone else is, or the system is. So this kind of concept provides people with enough wiggle room to allow them to justify their indulgences and their greed and their bad attitudes and their selfish behavior. The bad things that people do don't really come from them. They come from somewhere else. But now I'd like us to see that this kind of thinking doesn't just come from psychology and the secular worldview. It's also a logical conclusion that can come from the Calvinist concept that God causes 
sin. Now, most of the time, this issue hides under the surface. It just doesn't get brought up. No wonder when you've looked back over the logic and the illogic and the, the irrationality that we worked through earlier. Most of the time, it just hides under the surface, but sometimes it's not subtle. And let me give you an example. An example, uh, intermittently, Christianity Today, by far the, the widest read Christian uh, periodical, certainly in the last, what, 40, 50 years, Christianity Today, they run a series peri uh, periodically of articles called Doctrinal Renewal. And in 2000, they published an article entitled, that's uh, a really long title, so I put it in your notes there. Look at this. Here's the title, Free to Be Creatures Again, How Predestination Descended Like a Dove on Two Unsuspecting seminar Seminarians and Why They're So Grateful. Ready? That's the title, that predestination descended on like them uh, uh, and you ready for this? The article's feature was written by two students from Princeton Theological Seminary. Princeton, of course, being a bastion of Reformed theology. And it, accounts, uh, it recounts what they call their conversion to Calvinism. In the introduction, they give the essence of the entire article in a single sentence. You ready? I've written it in because it's so stunning. Ready? Blaming God. This is after converting to Calvinism at Princeton Theological Seminary. Blaming God for everything has been such a joy that we decided the least we could do was to tell the world how we got here. Holy cow. This goes the classic, the devil made me do it excuse, one better. I don't even need the devil to blame because I can blame, blame God for my sin. Listen to, the, listen to the start of the phrase again. Blaming God for everything has been such a joy. And what's remarkable is how well this fits into the same basic concept as modern psychological theory. The modern psychologist simply leaves God out of the equation, but the outcome is very similar. And I'll give this in a key concept. Ready? Here's your blank. There's four blanks, so I'll, I'll read it twice. When Christians believe that God is the cause of everything, including sin, they can logically believe that their actions are unavoidable and God gets the blame for what they do. Look at what you've written in now. When Christians believe that God is the cause of everything, including sin, they can logically believe that their actions are unavoidable and God gets the blame for what they do. But I want to look at how disastrous it is to live life without taking responsibility for our sin, for the blame going anywhere else and to especially to God. And to do this, we'll look at one of the key differences between King Saul and King David. <clears throat> We've looked at Saul <laughs> a lot lately. He, he has, I mean, you can teach Saul from a hundred different directions and, and just have scratched the surface. But first, let's evaluate the difference between Saul's sins and David's sins. As we pick up in his life, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13, 1 Samuel, it's about 20% of the way into the Bible. It's the beginning of the Samuels, Kings, and the Chronicles, a big, big chunk of the historical books. Ready? Um, as we pick it up, um, Samuel has explicitly commanded Saul to wait for him to come and to perform the sacrifice at Gilgal. The king must not do it. It must be the priest. Um, and uh, look with me at verse 8 in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, verse 8. 
Now he waited, he being Saul, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering and it came about as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering. Guess what? On the seventh day, just like Samuel had said, offering the burnt offering that behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what? Have you done? Ready? Sin number one. Here's your blank. Saul performed a religious sacrifice. Saul's sin, number one, he performed a religious sacrifice. And later we pick up the story after God has told Saul to destroy the murderous Amalekites. So he, ple- he leads his army to, uh, uh, to Amalek and defeats them. But look what happens. Turn over a couple of, a couple of chapters uh, to chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. Chapter 15, verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Avila as far as you go to Shur, which is is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. They were not willing to destroy them utterly, but every thing despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Ready? What did he do? Sin number two, Saul kept some sheep and spared a king's life. So notice his first sin, he performed a religious sacrifice. His second sin, he kept some sheep and he spared a king's life. But now for a dramatic a really dramatic contrast. Let's now go to David's sin. Go to 2 Samuel, the next book. 2 Samuel. Turn with me in 2 Samuel to chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting with verse 2. Ready? Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And, our, and one of uh, and he said, is this, this is remarkable. Look at how faithful the Holy Spirit is. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David, is this not the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? By the way, David knew exactly who Uriah was. He was, if you look it up, he's one of his 30 mighty men. men. That, he had given his life for David over and over. Look at this. Is this not the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, David, verse for David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, she, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. David's sin, number one, ready? He committed adultery to one of his best friends who had given his life for him. It's an astonishing treachery. At this point, now David, of course, is frantic, because now she's pregnant. Unexplainable because they've all been out for the spring, unexplainable by her own husband. So he devised a treacherous plan. He sent for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come to the palace from battle. And he inquired how the battle was going. And then he encouraged Uriah to go home to his wife. But Uriah's integrity kept him from doing this. And he spent the night outside the palace. So the next day, David got Uriah drunk, hoping that that would do the trick. And then he sent him home to Bathsheba again. But even in his drunkenness, oh my, talk about an affront 
to David's lack of integrity. Even in his drunkenness, Uriah would not go be with his wife when all of the other soldiers were in battle. He just wouldn't do it. And now David's heart became very dark and he decided to set Uriah up to be killed in battle. So let's pick up in verse 14. Look with me, chapter 11, verse 14. Now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Notice he has such integrity, he knows Uriah is not going to look in the letter. And he had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front of the line in the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. Ready? David's sin number two. Ready? David intentionally engineered Uriah's death. David intentionally engineered Uriah's death. And now to chapter 24. I think that's probably the last chapter. It is the last chapter of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. Look at this. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it incited, and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. He was not supposed to do this. He wasn't supposed to take a census. He was supposed to trust in the Lord, not in horses and chariots, right? But in the name of the Lord, his God. We know all that. Um, and the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was sent with him, go now through all the tribes of Israel to, from Ban to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. Notice Joab saying, you should not trust in those numbers, David. That's not where you're supposed to be. And the Lord will give you as many soldiers as you need. But look at this. While the eyes of the Lord my king, king still see, but why does the Lord my king delight in this thing? And look what happens. He does it anyway. Uh, nevertheless, See, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders. So the commanders went out from the presence to register the soldiers of Israel. And notice now, verse 15, an incredibly horrible outcome. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people of Dan to Beersheba died. Now, at some point, we're going to look at the implications, the philosophical implications of, of this whole concept of the angel of the Lord making others pay the price for David's sin. But for the moment, set that aside because it makes this point, sin number three, David was responsible for the death of 70,000 people. Think of his sins. So what a dramatic difference between the two kings. Think about it, right? I mean, what did Saul do? Saul, Saul uh, he, he did a religious rite and he kept a few sheep and he, <laughs> and he spared a king. And David, adultery, treacherous adultery. Then setting up the murder, uh, in his heart, murder of Uriah. And then finally being responsible for the death of 70,000 people. What happened to these two men? Now go back with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and look at verse 26. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 26. Look at this. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and he tore it. So Samuel said to him, ready? The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. 
Whoa. Keep that thought as we go on. You ready? So look at what happened to Saul. Ready? Remember the discrepancies between their sins. But look at this. What happened to Saul? Here's your, here's your blank. The Lord tore the kingdom from him. But now, in an astonishing contrast, look at Isaiah chapter 9. You'll know it well. <laughs> you thought George Friedrich Handel uh, wrote it, but uh, no, he didn't. Look at this. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, this amazing Messiah God who is coming. Look at this. There will be no increase to the end of his government or peace. You ready? On the throne of David. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So remember what happened to Saul? God tore the kingdom from him and ready for what happened to David? Here's your blank. God established his throne forever. What? If you've ever really noticed this, has it ever bothered you? Basically, think about it. Saul preempted a prophet by doing a religious rite, and then he spared a guy's life. But David, David committed adultery and then covered it up with a murder, and later his faithlessness led to the death of 70,000 people. And what happened to the two of them, Saul and David? God tore the kingdom from Saul and he promised to establish David's throne forever. With this dramatic and in it, the seemingly upside down set of consequences, we find an incredible biblical concept. And it emerges from looking at the responses of Saul and David to their sin. Let's start with Saul's response. Look, I put, to save time, I put the text here from 1 Samuel 13. Look at this. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw the people, because I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days, which by the way, wasn't even true. So who did Saul blame for his disobedience? Write it in. He blamed the people and Samuel. But now let's contrast this to David's response to his sins. We pick up the story where he's been publicly called out by the prophet Nathan for his treachery. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan then said to David, this famous exposing of David publicly, look at this. Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Oh, and listen to the prophet, rub it in. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? By doing evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. And look at David's immediate response. It's in your notes. Look at this. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And look how he responded after he took the census and the 70,000 people who died. Look at from 2 Samuel chapter 24. Then it's in your notes. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people. And he said, behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Remember, who did Saul blame for his disobedience? The people and Samuel. And you ready? In each circumstance with David, here's your blank. Who did David blame for his disobedience? David. He blamed himself. No pretense, no equivocation at all. It's I who have sinned. May this be upon me and not upon these other people. And now let's look at the legacies of King Saul and King David. Ready? Here's Saul's legacy. Here's your blank. Write it in. Spiritual failure and his kingship was removed. That was Saul's legacy. He, he experienced spiritual failure and his kingship was removed. But what about David? <laughs> Look how Jesus describes it in the last chapter of the Bible. Ready? Look at this. I, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. You ready? I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So Saul's legacy was spiritual failure and his kingship was removed. And you ready? David's legacy, here's your blanks. In the very last chapter of scripture, the king of the universe proudly announces that he comes from David's lineage. That's right. At the very end of the Bible, Jesus Christ identifies himself with, you ready, with David. Jesus puts David in the ultimate hall of fame. Why? What was the huge difference between Saul and David? You ready? Here's your blank. David took responsibility for his sin. David took responsibility for his sin and Saul didn't. Wow. Do you realize how important this is? On this very issue of being willing to accept the blame for my own actions may hinge the very future of generations yet unborn. Oh my, this is massive. So here's the take-home message from the lives of Saul and David. Ready? Here's your blanks, your last ones. The difference between greatness and failure. Listen, church. The difference between greatness and failure is the willingness to take responsibility for your actions. Right now, look at what you just wrote in. The difference between greatness and failure is the willingness to take responsibility for your actions. Think about this. Most people think that the difference between greatness and failure is how talented you are, or getting the lucky breaks, or who you know, or being born in the right family, or how smart you are, or being in the right place at the right time. But here's the biblical concept. If a person simply will be honest with themselves and honest with God about their choices and their motivations and their attitudes, and if they'll genuinely confess their sin and take responsibility for their actions, then God will make their path straight and he will move mountains for them and he will forgive their sins and he will cover all of their shortcomings and he will create an incredible legacy 
for them. It's not about talent. It's not about gifts. It's about me saying, it's me, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me who did it. It's not my wife. It's not my father. It's not my children. It's not the world. It's not, it's not my boss. It's not any of those things, Lord. It's me. That's what makes a person great. It's right, remarkable how many people settle for a life that falls so short of the incredible plan that God has for us. And one of the ways we do this is by blaming other people and our circumstances rather than simply taking responsibility ourselves. So, as we close, I'd like to ask some questions. Is there anything in your life that you need to confess to the Lord? Just stop. Listen tonight. Anything you need to confess to the Lord so he can make you great and make a great future for you? Have you been playing the victim or blaming others for your situation in life? Is there any repentance that you need to do so that God can free you up to be the incredible person that he created you to be? With David, are you willing to take full responsibility for every choice, every decision, every mistake, every error, every sin that you've committed? Now, here's the great news. If we go through the pain of honest confession, then the Lord will see to it that we experience the joy of victory. The road may not be easy. In fact, the road won't be easy, but you ready? It will be. The road will be great. God has an amazing legacy planned for everyone. Everyone who will simply, honestly, and openly search their hearts and examine their lives and confess their sins to the Lord. This is the only prerequisite that God needs to be able to use us mightily for his incredible purposes.